What does it mean to be a Southern writer? That's a question that Margaret Rinkle asks a lot in her new book, Graceland at Last. As a contributing columnist to the New York Times, Margaret gets asked herself about being, quote-unquote, the voice of the South. It's a title that she points out is impossible, because as she says in the introduction to this collection of essays, quote, there's no such thing as the South. Instead, she says, the persistent and pervasive notion of this place as a homogenous region, a conservative voting bloc, is as much a product of the American media's imagination as any episode of the Dukes of Hazard." And folks, if you know me, you know that when I first read that, my hands shot up in praise. Seriously, I could read her entire introduction to you. I won't, but I could, because she sets out to do what I hope we do here on The Reckon Interview. She's trying to examine the many cultures of the South and all of their messy complexity, ugliness, and beauty. To quote just one more bit, she says, To love the South is to see with clear eyes both its terrible darkness and its dazzling light, and to spend a lifetime trying to make sense of both. Now, you might remember that we had Margaret Rinkle back on the show in season one, and it remains one of our most popular episodes. Her first book, Late Migrations, is a beautiful meditation on grief, love, and nature in the South. And it's one that I turn to frequently during the pandemic, as I spent much more time than I expected in my own backyard. And her new book is just as rejuvenating. Margaret has a real gift for finding the stories of people in the South making a difference. The ones who are committed to doing the work, even when all the bad politicians keep making the headlines. It's a book that subscribers to this podcast will love. Now, if you want to learn more about Margaret's life growing up in Alabama, go listen to that first conversation we had in season one, because the last four years have given us plenty to talk about in today's episode. But let's go ahead and get started with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Margaret Rinkle, welcome back to The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. We last spoke in 2019 about your book, Late Migrations. And I just want to start out by saying how much that book meant to me and has helped me during this time of pandemic crisis and grief. I've spent a lot more time in my backyard, like I think a lot of people have in the South and that book and all over the country, that book was a real primer for, for how to navigate a very troubling time by looking at, at nature and, and finding inspiration there. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. That's always kind of my favorite thing anybody could say about late migrations is that it made them pay more attention to the natural world and their own yards or Well, in in your new book, uh, Graceland at Last, is a series of essays that you wrote for the New York Times. This collection of essays you've grouped into uh, a lot of topics that you cover very frequently for the Times, flora and fauna, social justice issues, faith and politics, and, and just a lot of issues that center around your home there in Nashville, but also across the entire Southeast. And the introduction that you wrote for the book feels very much like a call to arms for what so many of us are trying to do around the South. And, you know, I was kind of wishing I had stolen it from my mission statement with the Reckon interview. But at one point you write, the South has always been more than its most appalling truth. But you're also quick to point out that the fact that the rest of the country shares in the South's greatest moral failing doesn't excuse my region's brutal history or the way its vestiges still linger. And over the course of these essays, which were collected for the past four or five years, I'm curious how you balance those two ideas in your mind and in your writing. There was a part of me that was very that found the prospect of doing a greatest hits kind of collection very appealing. The ones that I know people loved, the ones I've heard people tell me they loved or that did especially well in terms of traffic. But that really wasn't going to make for a book. 
you, you want a book to be a whole and not just a collection of parts. And the only way to do that, I realized, was to try to make sure the book covered all the different things I wrestled with during the Trump years and since, not the things that created the most beautiful document, but the, the individual pieces that spoke to each other in a way that created, as much as I could manage, a comprehensive picture, not of the South, but at least of my experience of the South. Yeah, later in the book, you have a line where you say, what if being a Southern writer is foremost a matter of growing up in a deeply troubled place, and yet finding it somehow impossible to leave, of seeing clearly the failings of home and nevertheless refusing to flee. You're writing that in an essay about Jim Ridley, a, a late Nashville writer and critic. But I wonder if you were also kind of talking about yourself there and, and your role as a, as a Southern writer. Well, it was especially true of Jim who was a colleague of mine when I wrote for the Nashville scene. I probably shouldn't even call him a colleague because he was head and shoulders above me, just the most extraordinary writer and human being. And he really never left Middle Tennessee. He grew up in Murfreesboro. He went to Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro. He started writing for the Nashville Tennessean when he was still a teenager. As soon as he was out of college, he was writing for the Nashville scene. This was his home. He was dug in. And when I was thinking about him, because I wrote that column right after a collection of Jim's film reviews came out, he was primarily a film critic, but he wrote about everything, restaurants and books and music. And our mutual friend, Steve Harouche, was editing this, uh, this book that came out from Vanderbilt University Press. And it made me think about all the writers I know who are similar. I didn't leave the South, but I did leave Alabama. I lived in South Carolina for graduate school. I've been in Tennessee for 34 years. So, you know, my definition of home is a little bigger, but there are writers in this region who never left their own communities. You know, Eudora L. Welty lived in the house she was born in, or at least grew up in. And, and I think that's true for so many writers. It comes across to people outside the South as a kind of bubble or a little bit insular in some ways. But I don't think that's true. It's certainly not true today where you can't tell a highway exit in Alabama from a highway exit in Iowa. I mean, there's still gonna be a Hardee's or a McDonald's or a Home Depot or a Walmart. The Walmartization of America is complete. We are truly one nation. So it's not that People who live in the South or writers who write in the South are in some way buffered from the rest of the country or the world. I do think that it's, it's a complicated question for a Southern writer. Not always, but mostly people who are paying attention to the things that we regret about our, our homeland and not just the things we love, but those two. So definitely me, for sure. But not, but not nearly as profoundly as that was true for Jim. One of the things that I found so rejuvenating reading through this collection of essays is you do address some of those very real systemic problems that we have, whether it's racial injustice or climate change denial or anti 
LGBTQ sentiment from our Southern politicians, but you have a real knack for finding people on the ground who are quietly, you know, person by person, day by day, trying to make a difference and making an actual difference. Why are you drawn to these stories and, and how do you find these stories? My sense of purpose, if, if there is one, that not that the Times has given me any instructions on what my sense of purpose should be, but the one I feel most strongly is the need to break stereotypes. This is one thing that happens when you write for um, a national newspaper from a really uh, local place, is that it becomes clear to you how many people outside this place think they know who we are. And what they know are such just unbelievable stereotypes that they've picked up from Andy Griffith or Dukes of Hazard, or even just the parody of Southern politics that plays out in the national media. We're not only those things. And so I'm really drawn to people who are quietly going about the work of making this place better in some way, who aren't famous, who are never going to end up on the national news. And because it tells readers, I think it, my hope is that it shows readers how complex we really are, that there are people here who are doing things they couldn't even possibly imagine. I believe that's true of every community. There are always unsung heroes that, you know, that never rise to the level of national media coverage. Yeah. And, and I should just say, you know, anybody out there who regularly listens to this podcast, I think you would find just how much you love Margaret's book and also Margaret's columns on, on the New York Times. Uh, so please go out and find those and subscribe to them. These essays that you have pulled from this four-year period that happens to overlap with, with the Trump administration and the Trump election, how did it feel revisiting those pieces? I, you know, I don't necessarily like to go back and look at, at my past work. What were you right about? What were you wrong about? What did you see coming? First of all, I didn't see Donald Trump coming. Let me just confess that right off the bat. I'm not a reality TV watcher. I kind of had a sense of, that The Apprentice was something that was out there. I knew that there were, that his name was associated with the birther movement during the Obama years, but I I really wasn't paying that much attention because it didn't seem like a very big thing. It seemed like a, a little a little bunch of angry people who didn't have any power. And so what happened with when really from the moment Donald Trump announced his candidacy for, for the presidency right up through January 6th, it was for me this constant shock at what was out there that I didn't know, and the shock of his appeal. I, it was mind-boggling to me. <laughs> it still is, really. So when you ask me, what did I get right? What did I get wrong? I would say there's kind of nothing I got right um, in the early days. I thought for sure that this was, like all politicians, he was making promises he wasn't going to be able to keep or had no intention of keeping. And that eventually the people who voted for him would realize that and abandon him en masse. That didn't happen. Clearly, that didn't happen. There are plenty of people who did change their minds. I know lots and lots of people who changed their minds about him. 
and changed their votes in 2016. But in general, there hasn't been a mass exodus. Instead, it's it, it's become a movement, a political movement that goes far, far beyond Donald Trump and is not going anywhere. So I was wrong about that. I don't think I was wrong about what I found troubling about his positions. And I think if I had doubted that ever, January 6th would have made it clear to me. You know, if I doubted myself in any way, well, is there something here I missed? I would have been very clear. No, I didn't miss anything. If anything, it was worse than I thought. And the way that you group these essays together, you know, you have a section that's that's about politics and you have a section that's about faith. And in the South, so many of them seem, seem to overlap. In fact, that might actually be one section, faith and politics. You write about the perception of Southern Christians, particularly white evangelical Southern Christians, as it relates to Trumpism. I'm curious, you know, you're clearly working through issues of private faith, but also kind of faith in the public here in the South. What was that process like for you and where do you stand on it now? There's a difference between faith and religion. And that's one thing I wanted to make clear in the book that my quarrel is not with faith and my quarrel is with organized religion. We're supposed to have a separation of church and state in this country, but you wouldn't know it from many of the churches, especially many of the churches in the South. It's incredibly troubling to think about how just really differently somebody who identifies as a Christian, as I do, can read the Bible and come away with such profoundly different understanding. Uh, understandings of of what we're called to do. So I'm not at all troubled by what I'm called to do. I'm I'm troubled by how that got co-opted into a political debate. You write about a, a pilgrimage down to Georgia to see former President Jimmy Carter teach Sunday school in conversations with with John Lewis and other faith leaders, you know, with less recognizable names who are putting in the work. And even in the piece just today, you know, responding to the flooding in Tennessee, you, you talk about how, you know, for all of the talk about freedom and things like that, parishioners are very quick to help each other out. And if they have two of something, they'll give you one. And if they have one of something, I think you're right that they'll break it in half and, and give you half of it. So there is kind of that, I guess, disconnect between people's day-to-day actions with their community and their overall national voting habits and and politics? Well, that's always been true. I don't think that's anything new. People have always been able to love and respect people who are different from them on a case-by-case basis. You know, one of my favorite stories is of the lesbian couple here in town who tried to hire a local baker to make their wedding cake. And she was very happy to make the wedding cake until she learned that there would be two brides. And I can't remember exactly what she said when she told them in the text that she couldn't be, it would violate her beliefs to bake their cake. You know, she said, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was something to the effect of, you know, y'all seem like really nice people and I like you a lot, but I just can't do it. And I think that's often the case. I think that people are perfectly happy to accept the individuals, you know, that she might ha- not have a single, that baker might not have a single problem 
with the idea of having her hair cut by somebody who's gay, but she had a policy for her bakery. It's not as contradictory as it sounds. What you're able to accept on a small scale can be troubling to you on a larger scale. And I think that that's true across the political spectrum. There are things I've probably held my tongue about in the past that now I think, why didn't I say something? And it's because on the up close and personal kind of interactions, at least for Southerners, courtesy does win out over political ideology, almost always. You see that I'm wrong about that on some things, like the school, the school board meeting in Williamson County recently where people were screaming at doctors and nurses, we know where you, you live, we can find you, because they spoke in favor of a mask mandate for public schools. So people can be really rude to each other one-on-one, -on -one, but that's not generally the, the way it goes. That does seem to kind of hang over parts of this book, you know, from 2019, 2018, 2017, where it's just like, oh, you know, somewhere on the horizon is this pandemic event that is going to somehow throw all decorum out the window. Because, yeah, you know, that, that is one of the, the wealthiest counties in Tennessee. And I think it's also one of the highest vaccinated populations in Tennessee. And everybody collectively lost their minds over a mask mandate. And it's hard to know how much of that is performative because you do have people like Clay Travis who took over for Rush Limbaugh, who does not have kids in the system, as far as I know, showing up at the school board and ranting about the mask mandates there. Well, this is often the case. The people with sometimes the people with the most to gain politically or financially are the ones who are stirring up the trouble, not the people who actually have to live with the day to day results of a decision. And another example that you write about is enforcement of immigration policy in Nashville. Nashville has welcomed a lot of immigrants and you know, to its credit, despite being a red state, has welcomed a lot of refugees when other states in the South have not. And there's one example that you write about where ICE had shown up and they were going to take away this father and his son and, and community stepped into action and immediately encircled the car and were bringing gas and things like that to make sure they could stay in the car so that the ICE enforcement agents could, could not seize them. That one stuck out to me as a very stirring moment. First of all, the ICE officials in that case were breaking the law. They were lying to the man and his son in the van and telling them that, you know, they had the right to open the van. They had the right to seize them. They didn't have any such right. So the people who were surrounding the vehicle and protecting them, they were like, these are good neighbors. They're working hard. They're just taking care of their kids and they don't cause any trouble. And so what they were doing was illegal. And these, this is a working class community in Nashville, and they were surrounding this vehicle. And it was a very heart lifting kind of display of true justice, not just social justice, but just justice. Like this wasn't right, what was happening here. The neighbors stood up for their neighbor. And those are the kinds of stories that just make me feel better. <laughs> like, I realize that the people who are in the news most of the time, and especially the politicians, are just caricatures of who we really are. So I think if you just follow the money, what you see is that very often somebody is getting wealthy or protecting wealth from laws or from policies that impact people of very little wealth. 
a classic example in Tennessee and in most Southern states is the failure of the state General Assembly to expand Medicaid when the Affordable Care Act was passed. In Tennessee, it was set up in a way with the support of the then Republican governor to be a budget neutral thing to do. It was not going to cost the citizens of Tennessee one extra penny in tax dollars. And if you look at the polls, the people of Tennessee were overwhelmingly in favor of expanding Medicaid. And to this day, we still have not. Hospitals have closed. People are dying because there's no place in their own communities to go to for intensive care in this pandemic. Doctors and nurses are nowhere to be found in their communities because there's no work for them because the state has not expanded Medicaid. It's somebody is making a lot of money enforcing these policies. And usually what it is, it's, it's money outside the state. It's money outside the South often. Southern politicians are doing it, not because they think it's the right thing to do, but because they're going to face a primary challenge if they don't, or there's not going to be any campaign funding the next time they run. Well, and you mentioned pandemic and stretched resources in the medical community because of that. But in the book, you also talk about the opioid epidemic and people not being able to get the treatment that they need because they don't have access to high quality health care in Tennessee. It is interesting, even at the beginning of, of this collection of essays, you know, the 2016, 2017 essays that you include, the power structure was still very Republican, but it was slightly more business-minded and moderate Republican than it seems to be now in Tennessee. You know, Bill Haslam and, and um, Lamar Alexander and people like that uh, have been replaced by people who at least run and govern more ideologically to the right than than their predecessors. Do you get that sense or am I misreading it from afar? I mean, this is one thing I want to, you know, I want to be sure and point out is, you know, I live in Tennessee. I grew up in Alabama, went to school in South Carolina, married a Georgia boy. I'm, I'm pretty Southern through and through, but I'm not that interested in stories that are specific, not, certainly not in political stories that are specific to this town or this state or the state where I grew up or the state where I went to school. It's more the stories I'm interested in are the ones that reflect a broader regional trend or even a national trend. And it is definitely true that Republican elected officials are now remaking themselves in the mold of Donald Trump and not in the mold of Lamar Alexander or even Richard Nixon. I mean, think about it. Richard Nixon is the one who signed the Clean Air Act. Republicans didn't used to behave like this. Well, and when you point out, you know, our, our politicians aren't necessarily prepared to or even interested in, in solving a lot of the problems that plague the region, but you do point out that individuals can make a difference. In fact, in one essay called The Case Against Doing Nothing, you push back on people who are kind of cynically say that individual efforts won't do anything. And even if they don't fix systemic problems, we should do them anyway. There's no difference in the effect. If you say, I'm not going to do anything 
to mitigate the damage done by climate change because there's no point, my efforts won't matter. Or I'm not going to do anything about climate change because I don't believe climate change is real. I think it's a hoax. The net outcome of either of those positions is the same. So that's one thing I would say. The other thing is that it is in the interest of the fossil fuel industry for, for people to feel overwhelmed, for, for people to feel that this has gone too far and there's nothing they can do about it, or it's too complex and they can't understand it. It is in the interest of the people with money for everybody to feel that way. But the truth is, it's not true that you can't do anything about it. It's certainly not true if everybody decided to do something about it. If every person in my neighborhood stopped spraying for mosquitoes, then there would be, the impact would be immediate on our own ecosystem. It would be safer for children to play outside. It would be safer. There would be more insects. So there would be no, more birds because songbirds feed their babies insects. There would be more butterflies. The thing about especially making changes that affect the environment is that the natural world stands ready to bounce back. It will take any opportunity it can. When uh, the little house that my mother lived in across the street from me that I wrote about in Late Migrations, when it was torn down and a, a giant McMansion built in its place, the landscaping company came through and, and seeded the soil with pre-emergent chemical to keep weeds from coming up. And then it put down sod. And in you could see, you know how it does, you can always see when, when sod is newly laid, the, the seams, it looks like a little bit like a quilt and, or fields seen from the air. And you, and you, and there, so you could see those lines where the, where the sod butted up against um, each other. And in between one of those lines, a little, a little butterweed plant popped up shortly after they laid the seed. It just took that one little tiny bit of soil where the chemical hadn't reached and combined it with that little gap between the two pieces of sod laid side by side to find a way in. And when you see stuff like that in the natural world, you realize no, we're not going to go back to where we were 50 years ago. We're certainly not going to go back where we were 200 years ago. But we can make a difference. We just have to decide to do it. A lot of the times we decide not to do it because it's time consuming. It takes, it, 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 there's more trouble involved in finding, say, cleaning products that are not packaged in plastic bottles or to buy milk that was, um, was uh, partnered, packaged up at a dairy where the cows are treated humanely and that milk is certified humane. Those things cost more money. They take more time. That's undeniable. But, and that's one of the, the reasons that people have trouble doing it. But I do think that the more people show that there's a market for those products and the more they show that they want them to be more accessible and more affordable, the capitalist economy we are in will respond. It always does. Coming up after the break, Margaret Wrinkle shares with us keys to finding peace in nature and in your own backyard. (laughs) 
It was on June 7th of 1992 when three women completely vanished from a single-family home in the Missouri Ozarks, and they've been missing ever since. Police are working extended shifts around the clock trying to find Cheryl Levitt, her daughters Suzanne Streeter, and Suzanne's best friend Stacy McCall. I thought, there's something really wrong about this. She's not here, her clothes are here, and her car is here, and her purse is here, and the keys are here. I think we better report a missing. Somehow, they were targeted, uh, but certainly the person that did us had enough of an idea of what they needed to do to be able to get rid of three bodies. It just looked like, and it's the word I've used ever since this happened, like they were taken up to heaven. They were just gone. This is the Springfield Three, the story of three missing women who forever changed a small Missouri town and the people in it. There was no DNA at the scene and no bodies have been found. All that's left are some tattered missing posters and a lot of theories. So what really happened? To make one person disappear would be difficult. To make three disappear is nearly impossible. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. At times feels like a lot of nature in the South would kill us if it had the opportunity. <laughs> Whether it's a mosquito carrying Zika or a spider or a snake. And you have essays in here that are you know, kind of dispelling some of the rumors about snakes and things like that. But how should listeners balance that need to protect themselves from mosquito-borne illnesses with the need to protect their yards and to protect their local ecosystems by not spraying for mosquitoes and things like that? I think you have to ask yourself where your information is coming from. Is it coming from a mosquito control company or is it coming from a public health department? Because those are two really different sources of information, <laughs> at least different sources of reliable information. Do you have a Zika outbreak in your community? Chances are you do not. You know, if you're worried about a spider bite, people are so worried about brown recluse spider bites. Every house in the South has brown recluse spiders in it. Every single one of them. If they're brand new houses, the spiders will find you within six months. They're called brown recluse spiders for a reason. They hide. You don't know they're there. They don't bother you. You know, there are certain small precautions you can take. Like if you're taking out your winter coats that have been put away for six months, maybe you don't stick your hands right in the pockets. Maybe you give the, you shake them out and you give the spiders a chance to go away. Most of the things that people are afraid of, if they understood the relative risk, they would not even think about. The chances of being bitten by a brown recluse spider are vanishingly small. And the chances of getting really, really sick if you do are way smaller than that. And the same thing is true of being bitten by a rattlesnake. You're more apt to get kicked by a horse than to be bitten by a rattlesnake. Rattlesnakes are shy, secretive creatures. They don't want anything to do with you. If you accidentally step on one, you're in trouble. But most of the time, they don't live anywhere near where, where we are. If we're hiking on a trail, it would stand to reason that you look over a log before you step across it, things like that. They're just reasonable precautions that you take. We engage in many, many more frightening risks in our daily lives that have nothing to do with the natural world, and we give them no thought at all. 
we think nothing of hopping in the car and going for to drive somewhere. We think nothing of, you know, drinking the water from our tap. And we don't know what's in there. We just hope it's okay. But often it's not okay. My greatest advice is, you know, put the risk in proportion to the other risks you already take on in your daily life. The natural world is really not out to get you. The natural world is completely indifferent to you. You also talked about the importance of planting native species in your yard and trying to root out invasive species. Why does that matter? And, and how do you recommend getting started with something like that? Well, it's a work in progress in my own little half acre yard where we've been for 26 years. Eradicating invasives is almost impossible without the use of herbicides. And I don't use chemicals in my yard. We have come to a kind of peaceful coexistence, me and the creeping Charlie. I pull it out of the flower beds, but I let it go in the yard. Um, that's that little purple flower ground cover that blooms in the spring. Um, it's really pretty and the bees like it, but it doesn't belong here and it will take over. And it's a, an, an everlasting battle in my flower beds. But planting natives is much easier, especially now that we have the internet, because you can just easily Google what are the native plants for your specific ecosystem, not just Middle Tennessee, say, but Middle Tennessee in a shady yard with a kind of acidic soil. It can be that specific and a list of plants will pop up. But the advantage of planting for natives is, is really multifarious. One, it doesn't, those plants generally don't require any upkeep once they're well established. You don't have to prune them. You don't have to water them. You don't have to fertilize them. You don't have to do anything to them. They are, they are meant to be here and they thrive here without any interference. The other benefit is to, and it's a huge benefit, it's the benefit to wildlife. Because as we close in on the other creatures who share our ecosystem, we cut them off from nesting locations and we cut them off from food sources. And it's not just the ones we share our ecosystem with year round. It's also the pastors through. There are so many birds that come through the South that don't nest here and aren't familiar songbirds like cardinals are or mockingbirds or robins or the birds that we see year round. And they need fuel for the journey. They need something to eat. And most of what gets planted by yard services or most of what's available for sale in say a Lowe's or a Home Depot, a big box nursery department, that they are not geared toward our e ecosystem. They're geared toward, you know, a national. If you don't have berries and you don't have nuts and you don't have flowers with pollen and seeds for the creatures who share your ecosystem, uh, they will starve pure and simple. So if you like having birds in your life and you like having butterflies, um, it's, it's important to not to set out a bird feeder. We set out bird feeders for our own convenience because it's fun to watch birds at the feeder. But if what you really want to do is help sustain birds and help sustain the other creatures that we share an ecosystem. I'm thinking of just common creatures like skunks and possums and raccoons and, and rat snakes and songbirds and hawks and owls. 
those creatures need food. And the way to feed them is to plant the food they love. So it can be as simple as leaving your hackberry tree. It's not the prettiest tree in your yard, probably, but it's a creating an abundance of food for migratory birds. Oak trees, an acorn feeds an immense array of living things. You can plant pawpaws. They're not pretty trees, but the, the pawpaw fruit, when the pawpaw tree starts fruiting, um, it's, it's incredibly nutritious for deer and for all kinds of, and they would much prefer to eat these things than to eat your hydrangeas, you know, so that if you want the the non-native plants, you still want them, plant the stuff they want to eat so they'll leave your other stuff alone. You talked about having lived in that house for 20 something years. In that one essay where you read about the house across the street being torn down, you talk about how your neighborhood has changed since the city's population has started exploding in Nashville over the past couple of decades. How is that growth changing your neighborhood, but also how is it changing Nashville more broadly? Well, I'm not a sociologist, so I, I think somebody else could speak more knowledgeably about how it's changing Nashville more broadly. I can really only speak anecdotally. The interesting thing to me is how much has changed just since the pandemic. Started, I think that it has to do with how many people are working remotely. And it's dawning on people that if they're going to be working remotely anyway, they might as well be re- working remotely in, in the case of Tennessee, somewhere without a state income tax. And so we have a lot of people coming in from all, I have neighbors, new neighbors from Iowa, California, New York, Massachusetts. Some of these people came to take jobs. Some of them came to work from a home office complete and, and don't have any reason to be here, except that it sounded like a fun place to live. So I think the reasons that Nashville is changing continue to change themselves. It, for me, the biggest difference is that Nashville has become so much more affluent and wealth is probably the single most dangerous thing for the natural world. Once people are wealthy, they have a different frame of reference for the outdoors than poor people do. You know, they want every great, wealthy people want every blade of grass to be. I'm not, this is really prejudiced of me to say that. It's not all wealthy people, but the ones I live near, they want outside of their homes to be as manicured as the insides are. Whereas um, when people are just trying to earn a living, they're not really out there spraying for crabgrass too much. <laughs> There's a lot of scruffy plants that other people would call weeds, but that are actually really important to maintain a native eco- ecosystem. And the other thing is that when you tear a house down in an, in an established neighborhood to put a new house in its place, you invariably kill a lot of trees. It's just these old trees, these trees that have been here 70, 80 years, when you cut through their roots to put in a utility trench, it's going to kill a tree. And then that changes everything once the tree canopy is no longer fully shaded. It's just a whole different neighborhood. The essay that gives the book its title, Graceland at Last, is the one that you close the book with. And it's about kind of an ongoing effort that you'd had for almost 30 years to visit Graceland in Memphis. I was born in Memphis. I lived there until I was six. I've never 
been to Graceland. I, I did not really get into the Elvis thing as a, as a kid. And so uh, it has been one of those things where as I've gotten older, and actually this year, I was thinking, you know, as we're about to have our own child, you know, should I make a pilgrimage to my birthplace and, and visit Graceland and things like that? Obviously, the pandemic had other ideas, but I'm curious, what was it about Graceland that drew you and, and why did you give that title to your book? I don't think I even know to this day what drew me to it. In the in the essay, I describe how harrowing our trip from South Carolina graduate school to Nashville to move here to take our first teaching jobs, how harrowing that trip over Monteagle Mountain was and how the song that was playing on my portable tape player was the Paul Simon song, Graceland. So it wasn't really Elvis that kind of set the idea in my mind. Of course, you can't grow up in the South without knowing who Elvis was. But my parents weren't weren't country music fans. They they were older when they had my brother and sister and me, and they were really part of the big band era. That's the music that played on the radio in the car and the music that played at home. So I didn't have any any childhood nostalgia associated with Elvis. Um, but I just really wanted to go. And I chose that essay as the title essay for the collection because I liked the, the sort of echo in the background of this region, this homeland as a place of grace or as a, as a place that is always striving and not necessarily achieving grace. My favorite essays in the whole book we haven't even touched on are the ones about my family, because I, in the same way that you can't talk about the South without talking about religion, you can't talk about the South without talking about kinship either. We are people who are deeply connected to our people. It may be less so for people who are younger than I am, I, I guess because Southerners are, like everybody else, more mobile than they used to be. But I think about my my mother growing up in the same house that her father grew up in and me growing up partly in that house, too, how communities were so entrenched in their places and for generations, how we belong to one another, much more so than people might believe, you know, not just to the people we're we're literally kin to, but to people up and down the income ladder within that community as well. And that would include people of other races. It's just who we are. We are connected to one another. And I'm determined that we aren't going to lose that. That's one of our nicest things. That's one of the nicest things about us. In your introduction, you write about how you're putting this collection of essays together like a quilt. And in one of the essays, you talk about learning to quilt from your grandmother. And in the way that you were describing the South just then, you know, it, it is like a patchwork quilt of, of a variety of communities coming together. And so I love the way that you, you keep that through line, that you, you know, weave that through line throughout the book, so to speak. And then I should also note that the last time we spoke, I, I didn't notice this, and I don't know if you actually were at the time, but you write about how when you went on book tour for late migrations, you were wearing your mother's ring and I think your grandmother's ring and your mother-in-law's ring and, and carrying them with you. Is that is that something that you continue to do? Yes, I, I have five wedding rings on right now. Mine and my great-grandmother's on one hand and 
my mother's, my mother-in-law's, and my grandmother's other hand sort of stacked up, each on the ring fingers. Yeah, it's it was something I did. I'm not a an accomplished public speaker. I had terrible stage fright. Even when I was a teacher, you would think that a teacher would not worry too much about standing up in front of people and talking, but it's different because when you're teaching, you're talking to your own community. You're talking to people you are in relationship with, not to strangers. I don't know exactly how it came to me, but I thought about how the things I was worried about going on book tour, like navigating my way through airports alone and carrying all this gear. And I did actually lose an iPad and a, a, a laptop. And I don't even know how many like clothes and shampoo bottles during, during that book tour. But I just thought it would be a nice reminder that these women who came before me and who had survived the great depression and you know, both world wars and Korea and Vietnam and, and various pandemics, all the, you know, so much greater challenges than anything I was facing on a book tour. I just put them on and I just haven't taken them off. Well, what's next for you? Are you, are you working on any book after this? I do. I have a book due in March to Milkweed Editions, my publisher who did Graceland at last and Late Migrations. It's a, it's a collection of nature essays. It's set up like a devotional, like it, you read instead of reading one entry a day, because that would be too many, you read one a week and it follows the seasons and it's called This Beautiful Broken World. It'll be out in June of 2023. Great. Well, I look forward to having you back on the show to discuss that in June of 2023. Uh, Margaret, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, John. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Margaret Rinkle for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to Milkweed Editions for setting up the conversation. You can pick up her book, Graceland at Last, from your favorite local bookstore. Or if you don't have a favorite local bookstore, you can pick it up from Margaret's favorite local bookstore, Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. And I think if you buy it there, you might even get a signed copy. If you're enjoying our podcast, why not join The Conversation, our weekly newsletter where we continue to look at American culture, but through a Southern lens. You can sign up for that at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. The Reckon interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it's edited by Kanika Codrington and the wonderful team over at Edit Audio. Hey, if you've got suggestions for future guests, find me on Twitter at, at John Hammontree or shoot me an email at jhammontree at ReckonSouth.com. Or even better, leave them in the text of a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us get the word out. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.